You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because we're not that smart. I'm Mary Robinette Kowal. I'm Marshall Ryan Moreska. <laughs> I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Cass Morris. And this is episode 88. Hashtag aesthetic. Listeners, welcome back to another episode of World Building for Masochists, and we are absolutely delighted to welcome our special guest today, Mary Robinette. So nice to have you here. I'm delighted to be here. So I would love if you would give us a quick introduction to you and your work and how our listeners might know you or should know you or what you would like them to know. Perfect. Um, (laughs) So I write science fiction and fantasy, which I'm sure comes as a surprise to everyone. My uh, most recent book is called The Spare Man. It is basically the thin man in space. It's a murder mystery on an interplanetary cruise ship with a happily married couple and their small dog solving crime in space. Um, I'm probably best known for my uh, Lady Astronaut Universe series, which is begins with The Calculating Stars, which won Hugo Nebula. It was it was a good year. Um, and that's, uh, <laughs> it, was, it was a really good year. Um, and it's that's really basically, thanks. Uh, that's Apollo era science fiction. Uh, so asteroid hits the earth, starts the space program really fast. Um, and then I have the glamorous histories, which is Jane Austen with magic and ghost talkers, which is world war one with ghosts. Um, I also separately have a talking cat who uses cats, who uses buttons to talk, um, which is a thing that sounds like world building, but is in fact just my life. <laughs> and if you if you follow Mary Robinette on Instagram, you get you get lovely moments of Elsie saying things with her buttons, and it's just it's the it's refresher light. you need in your feed. Like <laughs> every day, I'm like, oh, I feel better now. I saw a cat say something. <laughs> Yesterday, well, see, this is the problem. We we mentioned the cat, and that's immediately like, and now we're get, this podcast is about my cat, right? Yes, Not- we're derailing completely. <laughs> Scrap any plans we had. Let's talk about the cat. Her her latest thing is she just uh, my husband was watching Monty Python, and she comes and she looks at the television, and her ears kind of go flat, and she walks over to the button board and presses. I don't understand. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> and I'm like, accurate. Well, yeah. well played. Well played. Yeah. Like one step away from too silly, too silly. <laughs> British humor is sometimes exactly. challenging for, for for American humans, let alone American yeah. cats. It's, it's not for everyone. No. Her review it of is Star not. Trek is scared by. <laughs> Just too too loud, too many yeah. too many whispering noises. No. Yep. Fair. That's precious. Yeah. Fair. I mean she's not she's not wrong. No. It's, you know. I mean I it's it's I imagine especially for a small cat very very loud overwhelming there's just yeah. too much too much happening there yes and so you know she has her own aesthetic exactly Ooh. which is what we have invited Mary Robinette on to talk to us about because as such you a good may have... pivot <laughs> <laughs> as you may have gotten the sense from um, her wide body of work that she shared with us at the beginning of the episode I mean there's there's a lot of different aesthetics happening Mm -hmm. there so we thought it would be a really good topic to talk about especially because we throw that word around not infrequently on this podcast and we've never really slowed down to like talk about what it means yeah and so i'm i'm one of the things for me that i get excited about with aesthetic is is it influences so much so in in puppetry when we talk about uh, and i should have maybe mentioned that i'm also a professional puppeteer but when we talk about voice um, we talk about style of puppet voice, and it's broken into three basic things, the mechanical, the aesthetic, and the personal. And the mechanical is like uh, first person, second person, third person, um, or uh, the mechanics of writing for a picture book versus writing a novel. And then the aesthetic is what it looks like. You know, does it look like a Muppet? Does it look like, you know, a, a something from Appalachia? And for writing, the aesthetic is is the voice. You know, what what does it sound like? Does it sound like it's Jane Austen? Does it? Ha- what's the feel of the thing? 
And then the personal is everything that the individual brings to it. And what I've learned is that you can actually teach someone to match an aesthetic. But even when you do that, uh, the, the thing that makes it special is still that personal voice. So so thinking of aesthetic as a tool that you can use to express your personal voice, that you can use to express the medium, to me is is very exciting. It's it's not just the um, the words that you use on the page, but but the the set dressing that you're choosing. Um, I was a, I did uh, props in New York, and the props that you pick, you know, says something about each character that's on that stage. So for me, it's exciting, and I, I think. It's a thing that you can do in fiction, and and I don't think it's a tool that everyone uses consciously enough. Rowena does, obviously. <laughs> no, I, I, I like what you say there with the idea that aesthetic is a tool, and it's part of, of what we're choosing to do to express whatever story that we, we might want to tell. It kind of made me think of if you have something that you want to paint, you're deciding, well, is this a watercolor, or is this oils, or is this pastel? Like, the way that you're building it is going to affect how someone perceives it and what they read into it beyond just the subject matter. Yeah, but at the same time, uh, oils, pastels, watercolors, those are all the mechanics of it. Right. And the aesthetics are like you can you can have wildly different oils that look like nothing alike. Like tattoo. Tattoo is a mechanic. And you can have these just beautifully ethereal tattoos and you can also have ones that are very sharply rigidly defined and it's it's not about the mechanic the mechanic can inform some of the choices that you're making but that aesthetic of of what you choose to do with the mechanic within the constraints of that mechanic that's that's i think where the the real numminess comes from yeah <laughs> and i'm sure too as, as we dig into this we'll probably talk a bit in the in the element of craft and how how do you do this like that there are some tools you might rely on more heavily for some aesthetics yeah. than others and what you pick up and what you what you put down yeah. um but yeah just that question of of the, it being a choice it being part of the conscious decision making process i think is is you're right something that we don't talk about quite as much. We often talk about the the result of aesthetic as we mm-hmm. experience or perceive it right. as readers or consumers of other media. Yeah, the uh, the other piece of it that I will say that I, the reason that I think it's so important for science fiction or fantasy writers is because we are an aesthetic driven genre. I think that that genres roughly break into two camps: structure driven genres. Um, which are things like mystery and romance and thriller, which they have to have certain beats in a certain order in order to be that thing. Like if you don't find out who the the murderer is at the end of a murder mystery, it's not a murder mystery. (laughs) Very disappointing murder mystery. (laughs) It's like the romance without a happily ever after is structurally not a romance. It it may be a love story, but it's structurally not a romance. Uh, Science fiction and fantasy doesn't have a structure. The thing that, that... people pick up the reason people read stuff is because of the aesthetic because they want to they want to be immersed in that world that that g whiz factor and sometimes the g whiz factor is ooh cool technology but everything is very modern day and sometimes it is like now i'm going to live in a place where the magic is being done by thread and you know sometimes it's um hello look we're on a luxury cruise liner but but people are picking it up because they want that that feel in much the same way that you'll you know when you pick your coffee shop it's often not about the coffee it's often about the the aesthetic of the coffee shop it's it's do i like being here you know yeah <laughs> and that applies to space and i think we we have often an intrinsic sense of like what kind of spaces do i enjoy being in and with books it's yeah what's the feel of this novel do i enjoy being inside these pages in a similar way created by totally different mechanics. It's not furniture and lighting. It's the words. Yeah, but we are, but, you know, when we're describing the furniture and the lighting, we're, the, the, <laughs> what we're doing is, the, the way I often think about it is that it is very much a theater of the mind, um, that we are creating a set in our readers' minds. And... And so the lighting that we choose to describe, the, the sets that we choose to describe, the, the props, all of that, uh, the language that we use to convey those things, builds this, this place in our reader's mind. And, 
and it's really easy to to default you know and just like put generic props in place so that you can focus on the story but it you don't you don't have to and you're missing a tool when you do that it's funny that that phrase is of a piece with one that that we used to use at um, a theater I worked at, which is the Blackfriars Playhouse in Stanton, Virginia, which is a recreated Mm. Elizabethan theater, Um, very stripped down, universal lighting, you know, oak wood, and it's not real marble, it's wood painted to look like marble is sort of the set. And they use some props when necessary, but very, very little. And what we always Mm -hmm. talked about there was the theater of the imagination and how in that space you are using the words primarily that the playwrights and it was, it was Shakespeare theaters was usually, but not always Shakespeare have given you, but then also just the way the actors move through that space can change so much of the mood in the theater. And I can think of plays there that felt darker, that had mm-hmm. a different aesthetic, despite being set in the exact same space with not that much done to change the physical aspects of the space. But the choices that actors were making with the tools of the words and their bodies and their voices made it feel completely different from a, a frothy, light, fun romance. It felt like a different space. And I love that. Yeah. 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 yeah you know, and, stage, and stage is so cool because so much can happen in this, this confined area, right? I mean, I think sometimes when we talk about aesthetic, it's really easy to default to talking about film and TV because they have this sweeping element to it that they can include all of these visuals, all of these sounds, like all this, you know, input happening at once. But stage does aesthetic too, sometimes with something as simple as a couple of chairs and mm-hmm. one prop, but it's still doing it. The ability of you know good actors to be able to be on a bare stage and be like, we're on a boat on the ocean and through nothing but their ability to project that sense. Like there's nothing visual that will actually tell you, yeah, that's that's a boat on the ocean, but you feel it nonetheless because they have brought you into this sort of... <laughs> shared delusion that is part of the acting process, <laughs> if, which if is delightful. Can, if, if your, your actors, actors can, can make it. the audience seasick, they're doing a really good job. Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. It's, it's, I, now we are in Arden. And I think that speaks mm-hmm. to what we as writers have to do too. We're trying to transport our readers in a similar way. We're not actually taking them to our forests or our spaceships or our cities, but we have to invoke the same kind of magic with words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and this is I think one of and I hadn't I hadn't actually thought about that this until we started talking about it. One of the reasons that I think that I often default to theater metaphors when I'm talking about it even though I have worked in film is because we have many of the same constraints. Like with film um you can you can show you know you can establish the picture is worth a thousand words is really actually very literal. You know it 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 will take a thousand words to describe everything that that you can can show in an opening shot but on stage you every every set change comes with a budget of time that and and i talk about this all the time it's like when you when you do go from one scene into another scene you have to give the reader time to establish and that's essentially you are moving the set pieces onto stage for them and so you need to figure out the minimum number of set pieces that you have to have on stage for them to know where they are and what scene they're going to be in. One of my actually one of my favorite examples of a single author demonstrating aesthetic in two different ways is in uh, Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey. So her character arrives. The, you know, there's the Abbey, and she goes into her room at night, and she's absolutely convinced that the that the mistress of the house has been murdered or, or is kept somewhere secretly in an attic. She's read all of the Gothic novels. And there's this terrifying scratching sound outside her window. And there's this wardrobe. And she desperately needs to try to get into the wardrobe. And it's locked. And she can't get into it. And, and then she finally does. She finally manages to break into it. And there's paper, but it's too dark to really read the paper. And, but it must, be, it must be a note about what has happened to this woman. In the morning, she gets up, and the scratching is like this beautiful rose bush that's outside the window. Just this cascading pinks and whites, gorgeous rose bush. The, the wardrobe that she couldn't get open had been unlocked, and she had locked it. And then, and then the, the note that she found was a laundry list. 
<laughs> and it's like this beautiful, bright, airy, comfortable room. And and the only thing that's changed is time of day and the narrator's perception of the room. But it, it's such a good example of what you can do with the way you describe the same elements. Oh, I like that. Yeah. It's interesting, too, talking about Austin. Um, when I think of the film adaptations of Austin, mm. how it's all coming from the same source material, but the aesthetics on these are often very different. And uh, without getting into which, which ones are good or bad, it's just it's an interesting you know comment on what was the director trying to do with this. A lot of it is, is aesthetic. Like I think yeah. of the, um, like the Kira Knightley Pride and Prejudice. I was talking with a friend about this. So he was like, it was like it was... It was Austin meets Bronte. It was so like all the Moors. I was like, it was really moody and kind of dark and sweeping and almost oppressive in some spots with that. And whether you agree with that choice or not, it conveyed an aesthetic. Mm -hmm. And then there's the the Bride and Prejudice by that just let's take this story and make it Bollywood. And it's, (laughs) it's, again, just taking the same thing and giving it a completely different aesthetic to create something unique with with the same story beats yeah there's a wonderful story called uh, a novel called unmarriageable which is a beat for beat retelling of pride and prejudice set in modern day pakistan and it like beat for beat and it is so good and and really really interesting the choices that she had to make to have things fit that that don't make sense culturally. And so how the the ways she had to restructure the stuff that was happening around those or where she had to sometimes put them in a different setting in order to allow the characters to meet up and have those encounters. But it is still, you know, you, you still get all of the the same things, you know. Netherfield is let at last. It's still it still happens. It's, it's yeah it but it's really interesting because it it's it is again beat for beat same story totally different aesthetic so what are some other um novels or or even film that we think do aesthetic well or even if we don't love the aesthetic do aesthetic in a way that conveys the aesthetic very effectively one of the ones that i actually thought of weirdly um is uh i, I don't know why i said weirdly but um John Scalzi has a, a short a novella called God Engines. Ooh, yeah. And, yeah, it is. it creates this cramped, claustrophobic, um, everything feels like it is dark and lit with single pools of light. And, and aesthetically, it's so different from everything else that he writes. It, it's, for me, that one is, I, there is a... There's a moodiness to it um, that I, I find interesting because the aesthetic is so different from his usual. I was thinking one one author that I've seen develop aesthetic in a really interesting way um, is Gail Carriger, who does the Parasol mm-hmm. Protectorate. Mm-hmm. And the very first book in that series was very consciously adopting an Austin aesthetic within this sort of steampunk aesthetic that dominates the entire version of the world she's built. Because it's a it's it's not second world it's our world but it's AU and it's very steampunky and there's also paranormal creatures and all of that, and then the subsequent books in the first series each sort of took a slightly different inspiration. Um, mm-hmm. One was a little I'm gonna I can't remember which one was which but like one was a little more gothic one was a little more of a like adventure travel novel aesthetic, and they were all really good I love these books, but I enjoyed it so much more, sort of after she stopped playing with those intentional imitations and the subsequent series that really just developed her world and the specific aesthetic she had created. Mm. Um, it felt like there was more confidence in them and I enjoyed it so much more because it just let me just absorb into the story she was creating without the tension that there sometimes was between the two aesthetics she was playing with, the, the world aesthetic she had and then the story aesthetic be it Austin or, or more gothic or whatever that she was trying to work with, once there stopped being that tension, I personally found it easier to just enjoy the world she had created. That is yeah. such a good point that there's, 
there's world aesthetic of what does the world feel like, and then there is story aesthetic of how is the story being told? What kind of a reader experience are you being led through? And do those two things match up or is there tension and if there is tension is that intentional tension or is that something that you know we as creators probably sometimes (laughs) need to be aware that we're playing with too many different different inspirations and aesthetics and have to have to you know make decisions about what the most important things are i i have run (laughs) myself that i have that problem yeah i've run myself (laughs) straight into that wall like it's like oh the things that work in historical straight historical fiction don't work when you put them in fantasy that's there's too much stuff too much stuff get rid of it get rid of it out 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 yeah. out, out. yeah this is one of the 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 reasons that i'm like that i talk about the the structure versus aesthetic driven genres is that i found that you can do an a, a structure and aesthetic you can do a, a mashup of those two really easily doing a mashup of two aesthetic genres or two structure genres is very hard it's like the, all of all of the rules, like nothing can take focus it, because it it's everything is happening. Um, I mean, unless you're right doing everything everywhere all at once, which is which breaks all the rules, which breaks all of the rules. <laughs> um, and some people do bounce off of it because of that. But it 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 creates something that fights with itself. I think that there is some a perception that aesthetic can be a shortcut for world building or that you're just kind of pastiching some, you know, aesthetic tropes over the work and that's counting as world building. And I thought we should maybe talk about that a little bit to talk about what aesthetic in world building is and what it is not. I think that's a great point. I think that is exactly the thing that that leads people down the path of cultural appropriation accidentally. Yes. Um, because Because they see an aesthetic that they like. And they're like, ooh, I want that. And then they put it in theirs without understanding that that aesthetic arises from a bunch of mechanical and personal choices for that culture. And so when you are when you're trying to to, you know, then you just paste it on top of your world, your your story without thinking about why it arose. Uh, The number of things that I have read where I'm like, that's great and all, but um, where 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 what? What's your power source? I'm sorry. <laughs> like, <laughs> you've got all of these things, and yet you're having like the, none of this. None of this connects or makes sense. There's no logical causality. There's no, none of this. So, like, the world building fail, fails, and because of that, the aesthetic then doesn't make sense. It's not. It's not doing the thing that it's trying to do. So, yeah. I think for me, it's like looking at it and thinking about um, I. I call them areas of intention it's like what is if you think about like a recipe like what is the structural thing that this is doing what is it why are you attracted to it what is the um what is the area of intention it's like do you uh is it that you are attracted to medieval japan because you're like oh i really like silk you know then there there are other we all do we all do But you have other options. It's like you have you have other choices. That doesn't mean that you have to then everybody is running around as a samurai. It's like the, those you can there are other ways you can have silk. Um, what is it? What is it that attracts you to that? And and then look at how that ex, ex, expresses itself in multiple different cultures. How that you know what um, I guess thematic elements arise if you if you look at it and how it can be used like if you think of it as a again a tool when we're talking about oils and pastels it's like what what does it do how does it work how does it work with your world i love that you've you phrased it as a recipe at the start because the things that go into a recipe the ingredients it's not just about flavor sometimes Mm -hmm. it's about what's the binding agent what's the rising agent that makes these things interact with each other in a way that will either turn out pleasing or horrifying, depending on how well you've done it. <laughs> well, and yeah, yeah, that idea that aesthetic is in many ways like arising from things that that exist within a world, and and more than one aesthetic can exist within the same kind of structural framework. But if it's not being held up by anything, it just kind of collapses. Mm-hmm. That that's very pretty, but it doesn't actually 
move or accommodate a story because there's nothing, you know, there's no walls holding up the mural. The mural is just there and then it kind of falls in on itself. Yeah. You gotta have a scaffold. You really do. Now, I was thinking about how we have all these subgenre terms that the subgenre terms are literally just shorthands for aesthetic. Like when we say steampunk, it is to mm-hmm. evoke something visual immediately. And same thing with like diesel punk or atom punk or anything. It's the idea that if, you, if, if you I just say punk. this, if I, well, A, if you use the word punk, then <laughs> I can create this entire visual pop incepting into the into the reader's head a whole further idea by just using one word and which is of course i think part of the goal is what's the least number of words i can do use Mm -hmm. to create the correct visual image in the reader's head i mean there's a reason that i pitch the glamorous histories series as jane austen with magic because i know if i say jane austen even though we've talked about all of the different adaptation of jane austen it creates a it creates an immediate aesthetic hit in your head. When you get into the books, like the first book is a straight up Regency romance, but then I start mapping different structural genres on. So the second book is a military spy novel disguised as a Regency romance. The third book is a political thriller disguised as a Regency romance. Then we have a a heist novel. It's like if Jane Austen wrote Ocean's Eleven. And, (laughs) And, you know, each of them... takes from a different structural genre but i use the the aesthetic that i built in that first one in which is like jane austen drawing room and a little bit of magic and there it is brand new thing when i think when we're world, world building thinking about the aesthetic of the world itself is a lot about those things what do the rooms look like what is the clothing mm-hmm. like um what's the music like what are the ambient noises as, as a person passes through their day and all these things that we talk about a lot that have threads that touch onto other things because like you said it needs a scaffolding if they've got this kind of clothing how why where did the fabric come yeah. from do they make it themselves is it designed for them all those questions then start start spawning their own implications um mm-hmm. about the rest of the world and the labor and economy and and all those those deep level things that underpin the choices you might be making at the surface level with the aesthetic yeah, and then it's also about where, like, the the pieces of it that you choose to focus on. I'm thinking specifically about N.K. Jemisin's The City We Became, which is set in modern-day New York. And modern-day New York has, like, so many different aesthetics, just naturally, which is also true of any world that you build. There's going to be multiple societies, any of those things. But it's where you focus the attention and and how the character interacts with it that really tells you, much like that example that I used with Austin, it tells you how you should be reacting to this thing. James Bond is, there's a distinct aesthetic to James James Bond films. It's, it's one of the reasons it's easy to, to do a pastiche of them, even though they span decades. But there's this specific feel and... and there's a kind of an emotional underpinning that you're told to to expect and experience when you watch one that is supported by the the um, the artistic choices, the the look and the feel of the the thing. In a lot of ways, aesthetic does shorthand to the reader, listener, viewer what to expect out of the experience, and to kind of prime that for them to say this is this is the kind of of world you're entering and the kind of story that we're going to be playing with. And I think that that's one of the reasons it does become very important in terms of being an effective storyteller is that we want to have the reader come along with us instead of kind of fighting against it and not quite knowing what they're doing. Like if their expectations are in line with what we're going to be doing, it's a much more pleasant experience for the reader all along. Not to say we don't surprise them and things like that, but if you know, like you say, if you go into what you think is going to be a romance and it turns out to go horribly wrong at the end, everyone's expectations are are disappointed. Yeah. If you go into something that looks like it's going to be a, you know, a, a very noir feel to it, the aesthetic is very noir, very kind of hard bitten, hard boiled, and all of a sudden it's all puppies and rainbows. You're like, this is not what I signed up for. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. Here. And, and often it's it's as simple as having a single contrasting element. You know, like if you have 
a, a June Cleaver style kitchen, all puppies and, and rainbows, and there's a f- single flickering light, mm-hmm. that that's going to be enough to let readers know that this is this is not going to be the ride you think you're you're in for, and. For me, this is, I mean, that's a thats a David Lynch lesson, right? <laughs> Going back to films again. But, but for me, again, it's this, like, aesthetic is such a powerful tool to, to help shape the reader experience. And, and approaching it uh, with, with conscious intention can give you these, this, this whole additional tool set that a lot of people do just... They, they do the shorthand and then they don't think about why they're doing the shorthand or any of the other pieces. They, they're just like, oh, I got, I got some chairs in the room. Chairs acquired. Yeah. Yeah, but what kind of chairs? Are they wood? <laughs> Are they embroidered? Mm-hmm. Are they comfortable? I had, um, I had an experience in theater years ago where a friend called me. I, I was doing set design in addition to the puppets. He called me and said, so our show opens next weekend, and this is like a Monday, I think. <laughs> our show opens next weekend, and our set designer has um, not shown up for the load-in uh, with the set uh, and has, we've learned, skipped town with the money uh, and gone on a massive drug binge. I have $150 in my personal account. <laughs> and I'm like... Okay. And so we sat down and we talked through what are the elements that have to be on stage or the story breaks. And then we made deliberate choices based on, okay, so I've got basically $75 for materials because it would be good if you could eat. Um, And also please pay me at some point. Um, And 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 that I had to work really really fast. So like let's let's make intentional choices. So instead of trying to do something that we were going to fail at, we stripped it down. And I did black and white freehand brushwork in the style of the New Yorker. And we decided that there needed to be a tree, a chair, a wall, and a uh, and the moon. And that was it. Oh sorry, there was a ladder and a ladder, and that was it. And uh, and those were the only elements we did straight black box theater otherwise. And the review for it was like, and the striking minimalism of the set by Mary. <laughs> it praised the set. But it was because we, we sat down and we thought through what, what support does this need? What are the, the pieces that must be on the stage to tell that story and that's the same choice that you have to make as a writer because every time you describe something it's costing words and so you have to you have to decide is is the thing that I'm about to describe actually going to support the story that I'm going to tell or is it just taking up space on stage is it just you know am I just spending money that I don't have and I think sometimes reevaluating your budget as you go you know like I think my first drafts <laughs> I overspend. I overspend in my mm. first drafts because I'm telling myself sometimes what the world looks like and what it feels like and what's going on. And then it's like in revisions, you look at it and go, oh, can I really afford that? Is that mm, that might be <laughs> that might be one fribble too many. Let's let's take that out of the shopping cart and <laughs> and, and just see, and I, see where we are. I under I underspend and I have to I have to go back and I have to buy some more window dressing and some more throw pillows because you trade. I can just give you too bare. Yeah. <laughs> see, I was just thinking since I have that budget, it, that background in low budget theater, that I'm constantly like, no, I can't afford that. No, I, I need to I need to I need to go minimalist. I need, and then and then in editing, people are like, can you can you explain this a little more? Can you? <laughs> So what you're yeah. saying this is this is trauma informed drafting. <laughs> right. yes. I was like, oh, I'm also out of low budget theater too. I didn't. I also underspend. And I am too, but I've gone the other direction. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> no one can stop me now. Exactly. <laughs> I can have it all. Oh wait, no, I can't. everything I ever wanted. Yeah. Wait, but I think it's really interesting that I mean, it wanted to kind of like you know swing back around to as aesthetic in a kind of specific way, but the things we choose to spend time on mm-hmm. are hugely influential on how aesthetic is perceived, right? I mean, it's it's not going to be whatever aesthetic you're aiming for 
if you aren't intentional about the stuff you're choosing to describe. You can't describe everything. You can't describe nothing. And you can't describe just like a smattering mishmash of random stuff or else you, you haven't created anything experiential except for a random mishmash of random stuff. I think something really fun that you can do too is is because aesthetic can be a shorthand, you can play with that expectation. And this is a place where we can bring our, our ethos of choose, don't presume into it. If you've established the aesthetic, you can spend fewer of your word points there, fewer of your, less of your word budget on the things that the reader will fill in on their own once they know what the aesthetic is. And you can instead spend your word budget on the thing that's different to train them mm-hmm. on. You mm-hmm. might think you know what, what's going to happen here. However, like, like Mary Robinette, what she said with the, um, the flickering light bulb. What's the thing that's different? What's the thing that's going to be unexpected within this aesthetic that I can now use as, as an on-ramp tool to train this reader? It's not going to be exactly what you think. It might be similar to what you think, but not 100%. I mean, even like an establishing shot in film, you know, even though it's going to get more in there, like we talked about, it's going to be a thousand words. It's still making a choice of what it's going to show, what it's going to pan over quickly, what it's going to fixate on, what you're going to get a close up of. And I think that you can consider that equivalent with writing. What, what are the things you can pan over that, that are going to be filled in by a reader's own, you know, our readers are smart. They have previous knowledge. They know what to do with a few hints. We hope. We hope. <laughs> Most of the time. And if they don't, this probably wasn't the book for them anyway. I mean, I think yeah. there is some of that there too. Um, but that, you know, what, what are you going to linger on? What are you going to do a close up of? What are you going to choose there? Yeah, there's um, there's a, a thing I talk about, again, like so much of my stuff comes out of puppetry, uh, that there are several principles of puppetry, um, two of which are focus and breath. Uh, focus is anything your character notices, um, and focus indicates thought. And then breath indicates emotion. So if, a, if someone walks into a room and they're breathing rapidly, you know that, that they were probably just running. There's that specific inhalation of breath that your mom does right before she yells at you. You know, you, you know, you know what that means. Um, and other, the rest of the time, we don't notice people breathing. But when you combine those two things, you can tell us, like, not only what someone is thinking about, but how they feel about it. And on the page, the way that we control that is the focus is the order of information. And then the breath is how long, how many words we use describing something. And so you can begin, you can begin that aesthetic, those aesthetic choices just by not not just thinking about the world building, but which pieces of it are you going to introduce to the reader first? Like if you are thinking about this massive, grandiose city, but your your character is someone from the slums and you start off by focusing, focusing us on mud and then looking up towards the massive, grandiose city, that's going to have a very different feeling for the reader than if you start on the massive, grandiose city and then pull down to the mud. And they're both appropriate choices, depending on the story that you're planning on telling and depending on where you're going to spend your time. And so I think that that's, uh, uh, again, one of those things that you can think deeply about. I also feel like one of the things that will happen to people is that they listen to us talking about these things and they it will cause them to freeze up and not write. Um, so I just want to remind you that it's also totally okay to just throw it down and fix it in post. <laughs> And it's interesting, too, because I think Cass and I have both said that aesthetic is sometimes a thing that we start with, that we know that that feel that that, you know, we want to play with in a project and then we kind of build from there. But that's not you don't have to necessarily have Mm -hmm. a good handle on that to start. Mary Robinette, for you, do you start with an idea of an aesthetic or do you does that develop along with the 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 process? Um, I do start with an idea of an aesthetic. I tend to be a, a very visually oriented person in, in general. Um, so I, I do tend to start with an idea of a, uh, of that. Like the the spare man, I knew that I wanted it to feel like the thin man in space. So I knew that that meant that things were going to be glittering, that it was going to be high society, that um, I, I knew that there were certain aspects of it. Uh, that There's that even I, a dog. There's I a dog. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Gimlet. So I, 
I knew that. I knew that I wanted it to have this glamorous feel. I knew I wanted it to feel like it was in the future. Um, so the those I had that in mind. But the specifics of what future glamour looks like, a lot of times I would have to get into a scene. I'm like, okay, so they've just gotten to their glamorous suite in the uh, on the Mars level of the International Spaceship Lindgren. What does that look like? <laughs> what does that look like? What does glamorous look like in the future? And so I, I turned, you know, I, I said before that I, I feel like um, the aesthetic is often arising from the mechanical and the personal. And uh, when you look at the history of fashion, it's always linked to technology. And so I'm like, so this is a future where we have self-cleaning fi- fibers. So what what is glamorous <laughs> in the future? What is what is uh, then then the things that become super expensive are the things that are not self-cleaning, that are bespoke, that are are tailor-made. And so then that means that if you want to mimic the fashion of the the wealthy, you're going to have grass stains created in your clothing much like the ripped jeans that we have now <laughs> it's like you're going to have grass stains you're going to have the very artistic uh coffee stain and you know that kind of thing um conveying that to the you know that that was a lot of fun however having said that when it came like and again t- intentional choices so we made all of those choices made all of those choices when it was time for the um the cover uh, the cover of the book does not have anyone in grass-stained clothing because the shorthand for someone picking it up does not say glamorous or elegant. So the shorthand that they get is the clothes that they're wearing look very, very noir, 1940s, um, even though that is not an aesthetic I actually use in the books at all. Nobody wears a suit anywhere in the book. Uh and and I recognize that you know this is again that that the the prices the the um the choices that you have to make the where are you going to do your shorthand the the whole thing with the grass chain just reminds me of this terrible eighties movies with Ali Sheedy called uh made uh, what is it is it made to order I think it, that was the name of it but the whole idea is she's this spoiled rich girl who her fairy godmother makes her a maid in somebody else's house <laughs> and, but at one point she irons the shirt of the man who she's working for and he gets very upset because it was a professionally wrinkled shirt it was <laughs> <laughs> and she's ruined it and so I, I, I do yeah. love that idea of making Essentially, the aesthetics of poverty become the new nouveau riche glamour. <laughs> oh, this is a thing that we have done all the time. I mean, mm-hmm. Marie Antoinette and dressing as a, a milkmaid. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Is, yeah, with a you know, perfumed sheep. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, uh, oysters uh, as a it's it's the, the food of the poor people. It's, you know, the um, ripped jeans. This is this is a thing that we do constantly it's one of the ways that you can assert privilege is that you can dress like someone who doesn't care and it's very different it's a like a super different thing so so just extending that into the future yeah i'm like uh the very wealthy have cosplayed as poor people for a long time oh i was tiny houses or or shipping container homes Mm -hmm. oh I like I was I was in uh, in a department store Talbots or, you know, some like in, in their extremely expensive area. And they had they had these jeans that were just paint spattered up and down. I'm like, I wore those in college <laughs> as an art major. And that paint was earned. Yes. <laughs> and these are five hundred dollars. <laughs> So yeah, no cosplaying is poor people. It's yep. a it's a whole it's a whole thing, people do. It's it's interesting that you bring up the oysters because one thing I was thinking of with with aesthetic is that the things that you put down, um, and don't use are probably just as important as the things that you do use yeah. in terms of like creating a sense of of space and the world and you you know just everything. And oysters were something I originally had in the first book of the Unraveled Kingdom series as street food. 
because this was really common in terms of like, this was poor people food, you'd have oyster shuckers on the street, you know, kind of shucking oysters for people as as they came along. And I, I really reads on it, I feel saying that's like, that's like luxury food. Why are your poor people eating that? And I was, it was a hurdle that I was like, I can't, the on ramp yeah. for explaining this is too much. I have to <laughs> cut this in order to maintain, you know, a, a very, you know, this is this is a, a very correct thing to insert into this world. But it, it shook the aesthetic mm-hmm. in a weird way. So it was kind of like I had to choose to pull that down because it's it's going to be too jarring. It's going to the perception of the world that I was creating was different aesthetically, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. On a different line, but similar uh, problem, I when I was doing the glamorous histories and I prided myself on having things be as as historically accurate as I could. And I had a wheelchair user and so was researching wheelchairs and found from the period a steam-powered wheelchair created the, the person the the inventor's name was Merlin. <laughs> yeah, that sounds too fake. That's, yeah, no, too fake. Too fake. This is very Tiffany and problem. What, yeah, right, yeah. right. And then and then I found that he had said that you could also mount small cannon to it for home defense. <laughs> and, and I was like, I cannot, under any circumstances, use that in this book because it immediately becomes steampunk and none of it is believable. No, none of it. It's such a shame. I need to know more about this yes. guy now. Like, I what do. was your life, dude? I mean, did, yeah, he, yeah. did he ever make it for someone who then, in fact, used it in a burglary situation? <laughs> I just want to know. I have so many questions. But yeah, it's like... The moment you say steam power, people are like, oh, steampunk. Right. If, if you're at even remotely historical setting. I was going to say, your oh, whole description so just immediately put Kenneth Branagh in Wild Wild West in my brain. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, for better or worse, aesthetic defines certain boundaries, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's so... It, it really does, um, because that that one... You know, when we were talking about the importance of that one one element that stands out, it it's it stands out because it breaks the bounds, which again reminds you that the, the bounds are pretty pretty narrow sometimes. I mean, they're ones you set up, but they are once you once you start down a path, the readers will. Um, I think partly because uh, they are building the rest of the world around it will extrapolate from the pieces that you have. And then if you introduce an element that doesn't seem to fit, even if it does make sense, like oysters or steam-powered wheelchairs. <laughs> <laughs> I also couldn't use the word electricity, even though Jane Austen literally yes. used that because it sounds like an anachronism. Yes. And that's, I mean, that's a really good point that even just, even the words, even the specific words that we choose to use not even what we describe or the thing that we're describing, but the word we use to describe it. You know, if I use red versus scarlet versus carmine, these are all evoking slightly different experiences in a reader, Mm -hmm. reactions from a reader. And I could be describing just the same stupid apple, but if I'm going to call it carmine, I've just, I've suggested something, not only about the speaker, but about the world they live in and contributed to the aesthetic of of the world and the aesthetic and the the experience words <laughs> they're so oh, great words. and so much trouble at the same time yeah <laughs> just gosh so often my descriptions are just chasing that dragon of the ease of just having a set designer make a thing and <laughs> and not have to worry about it yeah yeah it is nice when someone else builds the thing which you know actually having said that um it just occurred to me it is nice when someone else builds a thing i think that's the other reason that often we will use an existing aesthetic um because uh it's it is much easier to rent something from stock uh, and sometimes that is literally all you need sometimes the you know having a specific aesthetic is less important for the story uh when you know it's a story where you do want to create more space for the reader to bring their own experience in. There are definitely times and places where it's like, yeah, um, there's a, a wonderful, if you were a dinosaur, my love. You know, that, that, uh, that, that short story is all about the language 
it is not about evoking a sense of, you know, it's it's not about a w- world building of a place. It's it is it's leaning on the reader's understanding of hospitals and creating space for the reader to insert themselves and shaping it by the the word choices. But it is not about like building out a space for the reader to, you know, a physical space. I like that kind of the aesthetic of, of the mind and how we think about a space and how we think about is that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And you just added to my required reading list. Uh, Yeah. It's, it's very, very short. It's, Um, it's, it's wonderful though. This is part of our mission is adding to our listeners TBR lists one episode at a time. So I, I know we're, we're coming up toward having been talking for quite some time, but one of the things that I, I feel like we, we set up as a promise in the beginning that we can swing back around to a little bit is it's just the idea of on the craft level, what, what do we do? How, how do we aesthetic? How do we convey this? How do we do this? <laughs> Especially when we're thinking about the fact that the end result here is not just creating a fun playground for ourselves to play in, though... That's part of it. Makes the reading or the writing experience more enjoyable, but also that we're creating a reader experience. So how do we go about crafting aesthetic? So for me, one of the things is that I decide um, what I'm going to focus on. The So I, I mentioned, you know, the idea of uh, the, 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 the breath, how long you describe something tells you tells you something about the the emotion of it, but it also tells you how long... Uh, by lingering on it, how important it is. And so rather than trying to describe everything in a space, uh, I will I will pick a detail that is important to my character um, that also is what I think of usually at the beginning as a genre-specific detail. So, um, and I try to tie it into a sensory experience. So if I want, if I want to have something that is... Um, you know, instead of saying, uh, uh, she, she stood in the battleship's engine room. It's like, okay, well, great. That, that, that is a space. Good. Okay. Uh, the, the thrum of the battleship's engines vibrated through her feet, you know, resonated up through her feet. That, that gives you, that gives you a, a sensory detail. It starts to ground you a little bit more. If I said something like, the thrum of the battleship's warp core drive resonated through her feet, that immediately, just warp core immediately wraps Star Trek around you. If I said the hiss of the dirigible, that that again wraps something around you. So I, I try to pick, it is a piece of shorthand, but I try to pick something, some, something that's very specific to a time and place and, and feel to drop pretty early on. Transistor radio, um, electric fans, uh, cell phones—all of those things, all of those pieces of technology ground you in time and place. Horses, the smell of leather—all of these things. But if I can tie it to a sensory detail, the reader is going to start pulling in the other pieces of that that, that go with that sensory detail. Like if I say. If I talk about a hum that resonates up through their feet, they know that there's a sound that's going to go with that. So they'll start to they'll start to do some of that world building for me if I can give them that that first piece to to get grounded with. And I love that with anchoring, not just with the sensory detail, but how a character is experiencing that detail, which layers in another element of, you know, that's a choice too. How does that mm-hmm. character experience it? Is it positive? negative, neutral, where yeah. do they experience it? What are they noticing? What are they picking up on? It's very cool. I like that. Yeah. I'll, I'll also think about what my character's primary sense is and then use that as the, as, as one of my drivers for the aesthetic. Like my primary sense is sight and, and we tend to default to that a lot when we're writing fiction. Uh, but sometimes I'll have a character whose primary sense is sound and, um, and it creates a different experience for the reader. Oh, I like that too. And then especially not necessarily only, but if you're doing multi-POV, it would be a really interesting mm-hmm. way to, to layer the same space as experienced very differently by two different people. What are some of the tools you all use? A lot of it for me comes down to rhetoric because I am a huge <laughs> rhetoric nerd. 
I I love <laughs> the patterns that words make. And mm. this is more about the developing the story aesthetic than the world aesthetic, although certainly they interrelate. But the story aesthetic, you know, how what what the rhythm and the cadence of paragraphs and dialogue and mm-hmm. those things are of the descriptive elements that that I, that are in turn creating the world aesthetic to me is deeply twined with the the rhetorical devices that I have in my brain because of Latin and Shakespeare. It's like, do I use antanaclasis? Do I use anadiplosis? Do I use all these geeky things that are in my head that are about the way that you chain words and thoughts together? And how do I use those to teach the reader what to be thinking about and what to expect? Oh, I like that. I think about those things in terms of, uh, of breath, um, because for me, the the again it's it's about the rhythms but you know is is this is this a uh, a languid place in which case my sentence structure is going to be quite different than if it's a rapid chaotic place where i'm going to be using a totally different sentence structure and but yeah those are those are ways of conveying this this aesthetic to people without having to say the aesthetics of this world is <laughs> <laughs> let me just show you my pinterest board that'll that'll save us all a lot of time I did. I did at at one point in in the spare man. Someone was like, they find a clue and they're like, "Is this a thing?" And she's like, mm, "No, this isn't a this year model because this year the 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 colors uh, are uh, purple, teal, and gold." <laughs> I'm just like, "Hello, everybody! <laughs> Don't mind me. This is my aesthetic. Hello, here's my palette." <laughs> I like that though. It's, we're all that clear now. Good. Purple, teal, gold. <laughs> Boom, done. <laughs> and handled. I mean, sometimes you do have so, to have that balance of just like, these are the colors. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if it's a thing of like, something aesthetically is going to be different from your expectations, but then the rest of things will more fit your expectations. I'm thinking. So in my Meridane series, I have a thing that nobody wears black even though the cover artist put people in black and i'm annoyed by that but you know <laughs> nemoto <laughs> we understand <laughs> but black is just simply not a color that people wear so then when i'm writing when i'm writing a funeral scene i have to be like i have to make it clear what the proper aesthetics for mourning are because i can't just use the shorthand of like wearing a black veil or something and so it was a thing of like so that they're wearing they're wearing violet as the morning color and then everything else is more familiar so you can then attach that it's like okay so that's the proper that's the proper aesthetic to go with a funeral and everything else is familiar to me i like that yeah funerals are a great place to like i i think as a writing exercise for people writing a funeral um in your your secondary world or you know or your your future is is one of the places that you you have to really dig in i have a a novel that we're we're shopping right now here's here's the shorthand for you it's alfred hitchcock presents the dragon riders of pern um, i'm in i'm in <laughs> grabby hands sold yeah. yes <laughs> But it's a secondary world fantasy, and so I they have a different religious system. So I I had to, there's it and there is because it's it there's there's a murder, um, there's a funeral scene, and I had to like really sit down and think through how do people mourn, what does it mean? And it's like what you know what are the colors you wear? Why do you wear them? And uh, and mine mine they do wear black, but it's to celebrate the return to the void, and um, and then the the other thing is that the the church floor is uh, packed packed earth, and so you you rest your hands on the church floor as you're as you're praying, and one of the ways you you symbolize your your connection and to the the person who is mourning is that you you touch them to leave these umber handprints all over them. And um, and it, it makes sense within the, the, the world, but it was just like, what? What do I, 
Why? And, you know, so thinking through the the why, like one of the reasons that black got associated with a lot of things in Europe is because it was a really expensive color to make. And so uh, all of the, the, the religious people who were wearing black weren't wearing it because they were necessarily pious. It's because they had wealthy families who gave them a cool thing. And, you know, it's like, well, why do we do this? Why? Why that? Why? But I think funeral scenes in particular are, are a place where you can just, as a writing exercise, it doesn't have to be something that shows up in your novel, but it's a very hard thing, but it will, it will force you to think through things. Same with marriage, yeah. especially if marriage means something yeah. completely different within the context mm-hmm. of your world. And again, how much you're how much you're letting the reader presume just by using the word married, or do you use a different word? Yeah. Because yeah, it's not going to be the same word. thing. Yeah, this is a thing yeah. that I actually get annoyed with, and and then have to let it go every single time I watch an Austin <laughs> novel, or Austin film, is the wedding scene, because mm-hmm. the weddings in Regency England not were. Like there was, it, it, there was no pageantry. You you got married, yes, privately in a church, and then you had a breakfast afterwards. Like people came to that, they didn't come to the ceremony, and so like people running out and throwing things at you as you like none of that. There were no like none of that happens. But I understand <laughs> that you have to use that modern thing because that is that is the visual people expect. That's the shorthand for happily ever after. Yeah. But that can be a delightful choice too. Right. It's just interesting because if you if you showed like a tiny private ceremony, that would convey something very different to a modern viewer. Yeah. It would convey secrecy, elopement. Mm-hmm. This is not that happy. There's constraints on us. It's just it's so it's funny, but it's it's true. But like also, I'm thinking about a Knight's Tale using modern music as as a way to key in the viewer who is modern how people feel about what's going on. Mm-hmm. This is exciting. This yeah. is sexy. This, this is, is cool. <laughs> yeah. Not, you know, which we do not think of when we hear someone playing a lute, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. But for them, the lutes were, the, you know, that was the hot, sexy instrument. So, yeah. <laughs> I wonder if you could make a lute go boom, chicken, wow, wow. I, I, I'm sure someone at a Ren Fair has. Yeah. Yeah, probably, yeah. <laughs> That's the same. I, I know, I know people. I'm sure they've... <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I, I I know I know someone who plays bagpipe in an ACDC tribute band. So that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But just the fact that it exists, it, it yeah. exists. <laughs> yeah, and again, you know, the 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 surprising contrasts, I think, are one of the things that can be most delightful in in the. Uh, I saw them in the Chicago area. I'm certain they go other places, but there's a uh, a Klingon cover band and they they but specifically they have a bagpiper and of course they do of course they do but he has figured out exactly how the kilt and all of the the paraphernalia would be adjusted to 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 make sense as a klingon sorry it's i have to to make a note to look up klingon (laughs) bagpiper later But it's like I don't see a too far of a journey to go from A to B with that. Yeah. It, it, no. it feels very, it feels very right. Yeah, yeah, it, it does. Somehow yeah. It they does. live in the same yeah. aesthetic. Aesthetic, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Like... Ah. <laughs> Rings it back around. Yeah. Good job, Rowan. <laughs> That's why I'm here. That's what I do. <laughs> well, we are. Um, I think. Even with our our diversions coming on to our hour, and I want to have time to first make sure have we covered everything that we wanted to talk about. I mean, we could keep going. There's anything we probably keep going indefinitely, (laughs) but I'm sure I'm sure Elsie needs something. something She she has actually she is uh, has gone to lie down sleepy. So she is curled up. She apparently needed to go do some exploring before that, but no, she's she's asleep. We are not that interesting. <laughs> we're not that Understand. smart. Not that smart. <laughs> so since we're coming to the end of our episode, we absolutely wanted to have time to ask Mary Robinette if she has a little piece of world building to bequeath upon us to fit into the curio cabinet that is the world that we are building together. I mean bequeathing you with the the steam-powered wheelchair is <laughs> we take, take it please take the steam-powered wheelchair i desperately want someone to write something with the steam-powered wheelchair 
that made by Merlin. I mean, Merlin. <laughs> oh, it hurts so much that I can't use it. Like, there, there should be there should be an anthology for for writers for the the thing that they couldn't use. include, and you write just like this oh, little yeah. piece of flash that's just like this is the thing I wanted and I couldn't have it. That'd yeah, great. I would yeah. I would buy that anthology Absolutely. in a minute because you know it would just be a joy. Yeah. Yeah, you could call it secondhand world building. <laughs> please, please take my thing. Yes. Gosh, I love it. Well, thank you for the steam-powered wheelchair. Yeah. Um, we will use with it. The cannons, we will use it. With the cannons installed. With the cannons. We'll use with it. The cannons. Figuratively and perhaps literally. I don't yeah. know. We'll see yeah. what we can do. The, the illustrations that go with it are delightful. <gasps> We're going to look them up. We're going to find it. Yeah. Oh, I need yeah. to see yes. this. Oh, yes. We need this in our lives. Well, thank you so much for being here with us. It has been a delight. I am. This was a wonderful conversation. You gave me a lot of things to think about, and uh, I found this. You find your aesthetic very appealing. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you. Hi you! Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on November 9th where we'll be talking with Laura Ann Gilman about stealing from the best parts of history. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, including my most recent novel, The Quarry Gate Gambit, links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're building and help us all build until it hurts.